you please take your Bibles tonight, let's go over to Mark chapter 5, Gospel of Mark and chapter 5. Pastor Rod and I are tag team preaching through the book of the Revelation, and sometimes in the evenings we go in a little bit different direction, but we're both eagerly anticipating some of the uh, messages coming up, and so it'd really be a, work, a time to rejoice and work through what the Lord is teaching us in the book of the Revelation. I'd like to read an extended passage to you tonight from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. And remember what's actually happening here is the Lord is demonstrating the glory of Jesus Christ. There is a very real sense in which each new story introduces us, reintroduces us, if you will, to who the Lord Jesus Christ really is. Now, what we believe is going on here in the Gospel of Mark is there are so many eyewitness details. For instance, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, it says they sat down on the green grass. That's one of the only places that shows up, even though that miracle is in all the Gospels. It's the only place where it's noted they sat down on the green grass. That tells us that there are some eyewitness accounts. And here's what most scholars believe. They believe that John Mark, who wrote this gospel, actually worked very closely with Peter. In fact, there are some who think that it was actually Peter's eyewitness accounts that you have here in the gospel of Mark and that the stenographers of the time, and we know that they had those Roman stenographers who could uh, copy out very quickly, copy out the things that were said, that he, that Peter gave this testimony, and as he did, he actually wove together some of the concepts from both Mark and Luke. And so what you see here, we believe, is an eyewitness account, first of all, of Mark saying, of uh, Peter saying, I saw the calming of the storm, the lake on the Sea of Galilee, and then I saw the calming of a life that we see here in verses 1 through 20. So take a look at Mark chapter 5 and begin reading with verse 1. And they came over unto the other side into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, the fetters broken in pieces, and neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send him away out of the country. Now there was near unto the mountains a great herd of swine, pigs, feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what was that that was done. And they came to Jesus 
and they saw him that was possessed with the demon. The literal rendering there is he was demonized, possessed with the devil, and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they saw it was told that it was told them how it befell him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coast. That is, they asked Jesus to leave. They began to pray him to depart out of their coast. And when he was coming to the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit, Jesus suffered him not, allowed him not to do that, but said, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord has done for thee and has had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis. Decapolis there refers to the ten-city region. He began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. Shall we pause together to pray? We exalt you, Lord, tonight for your magnificent power over the devil and over all the demons We praise you that you tell us in the word of God that though the devil is like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour, that we can humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We can resist the devil and he will flee from us. And that is the promise that we have from you. So Lord, even tonight as we get into this difficult area of what it means to be demonized and even to think about how is that even possible that someone could be so captured by the demons. I ask dear Heavenly Father that tonight you would give us strength and stamina for the days ahead and understanding we desperately need you because we sense in our own culture that these very kinds of things are taking place. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to understand tonight that when the Lord comes up against the legion, who it is that always wins and help us to take greater hope and faith and have more confidence in our precious Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When you see in the passage here in verse 1 that it tells you that they went to the other side, stop to think about what that means just for a moment. I put on the screen there the picture of the Sea of Galilee. It is basically a the shape of a harp, if you just kind of wanted to visualize it that way, the shape of a harp. And that is called, sometimes it is called Genesaret or Kinnereth, the Hebrew word there that's used basically refers to the harp shape that you are looking at there. And if you look on the right side of the Sea of Galilee, you'll see that there is a little place there. Today it's called Kursi, K-U-R-S-I. The very best guess that everyone has is that's probably the area that we are talking about. And I say probably because the one thing they have never been able to find in this area as they have looked for the place of this miracle, they've never been able to find the tombs. They've constantly looked all through this area during the Crusader era and during the Byzantine era, there were those who said, well, this surely is the place. And they actually built some rather uh, elaborate churches there. When you think about what we're talking about, you see the area known as Tiberias. You can see it on the left side of the Sea of Galilee there. Tiberias is there even to this day. The area directly across from that, you notice above there's a reference to Gergesa. That's an area that is considered very much like Kersi on the previous slide. There is also the area known as Hippos. Hippos refers to, it's the Latin word for 
uh, horse, when you hear hippopotamus, water horse, I mean, that's where the word comes from. And there's a couple theories about that, about why is it called hippos. And the most common theory is that that's one of the best places that the Romans had to go down and water their horses at the lake. There's at least one who says, well, no, there's a little bit more to it than that. There's like a, a horse-shaped hill near there. In any case, the miracle that we're looking about looking at tonight is probably in that area there, around Gergesa. Sometimes it's referred to as Gadaria. Here's one of the things we don't know. We're not exactly positive. What was the level of the lake at the time? And this is really kind of interesting when you get into archaeology and the things that happened. Every time the level of the Sea of Galilee goes down, all of the locals begin to gather around and they start looking for some of the ancient ports. If you look online at uh, just south of Tiberias, there's a place called Nafginasar, and there they have basically restored what is called the Jesus boat. And they found it down in the mud. They knew perfectly well that if they didn't work very quickly, that they would probably lose it. The wood would just crumble and, and fall apart. And so what they did was they figured out how to put it into this giant tank that was full of wax and just continually work at embedding the wax right into it. As a result, you can look online, go to Nafginasar, N-O-F-G-I-N-N-A-U-S-U-R, I think it is. If, if you just look up Jesus' boat, there's no indication that Jesus was actually in this boat, but that's what they were Refer to it as because of how well known he was. That's there south of Tiberias. This area, as you can see, is a very, there's a number of things that happened in this area that are referred to in the scripture. Now, what's fascinating about that is there are more references in to actual geographical places that we know where they are in the first 20 chapters of Genesis than there is, for instance, in all of the Quran. And, and even all, in all the Book of Mormon. A lot of fictional places mentioned, but no actual places. One of the things that I want you to think about when we're talking about this is think about the way that the Lord created this universe for his highest and greatest glory. Bear in mind that the reality you live in, the universe you live in, the existence you have right now is not God's second best. Oh no, this is, this is God's first and greatest. He, even with the curse, what is actually happening is he is demonstrating his glory and even his power over sin and death and hell. He is demonstrating his great glory. Well, if you take that idea and apply it, one of the things that begins to come to mind is, you know, all of these places in Israel, all of these places are so very significant. Why? God himself chose to illustrate and apply some of the most powerful lessons about himself in this place called the Holy Land, in this place called Israel. And so what that means is each and every one of these places kind of takes on a new significance. Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin around the year 1000, Jerome actually referred to the land, the Holy Land, as the fifth gospel. 
And, and what he meant by that was that when you go to the Holy Land and you see the places that are there and you begin to understand some of the lessons that we're looking at like here this evening, it just comes alive. I mean, you begin to see, ah, that's, that's why this is this way. And this is why the Lord has put it together that way. So all that for when you see the other side, the country of the Gadarenes, I put a couple of pictures in there. There's what Kersey looks like today. Uh, as I said, the, in the Byzantine era and even some of the Crusaders, they were so sure that they had found it. We're not exactly sure why are they are so sure they found it. But they put up some pretty elaborate churches and uh, even some, at the time, some synagogues in that very same area. And there's another picture of what it looks like today at Gergesa or Kursi, Corsia, uh, it's sometimes referred to as. And so you can go there today. You can go to this very spot where we're talking about. And that makes it, I think, all the more interesting. This is an area then where the Lord delivered someone who was demonized. If you go to verse 14 and you see there what it refers to in the King James, it says devils. The better word is probably demons. And, and it's basically transliterating it so that when you say, was he, was he possessed by demons? Was he dominated by demons? Here's our best answer. He was demonized. He was certainly under the control of those demons. And they were uh, occupying him and actually causing him to hurt himself. In fact, look down, if you will, at verse 11. There was there, nine to the mountains, a great herd of swine. Now, that tells you something. When you think about why were there pigs in that area? Why was that even happening? Because you think about the Old Testament law and you think about you know, what you find in the Bible. You say, what? why were there pigs there in the first place? The answer is it was a Gentile region. One of the most interesting aspects of archaeology that they are finding out today is when you go to places like Shechem or Shiloh, when you go to those places and you look back at history and you learn, hey, this area was dominated, say, by the Canaanites at a certain area. But then Joshua came in and the people of Israel took over that area. That when you go into what they refer to as the tells, T-E-L, that what you have in each one of the city, for instance, you have Tel Megiddo. Megiddo has been destroyed and rebuilt, I think, 26 different times. I'll show you a picture of Beit Shan here in a few minutes. Again, another tell there in the area. That as they dig down, here's one of the things they find. They find, oh, in this era, we find no pig bones. There, there aren't any swine or pig bones in this time. Dig down a little farther, find pig bones. Why is that significant? Well, in the Old Testament, we know that the children of Israel were told that pork, it was an unclean animal. They were not allowed to eat it. Now, we find in the New Testament, all are to be received. I'm not preaching here tonight against pigs or pork or eating uh, bacon or you know anything else like that. But what's interesting is to see how the Lord demonstrated his glory back in those, uh, those times. But that now you can see it in the archaeological digs. And you can see, look, at this time in this era, uh, this place was not dominated by Gentiles. Why? There's no pig bones. In fact, you find lambs. I mean, you find, you find beef bones. You don't find those. And so that makes it really, really interesting. And it's one of the indications when we see in the text here that it was pigs, that it was swine. Aha, this is a Gentile area. And they, these demons said that we may enter into them. Well, that introduces something for all of us. You mean to tell me that even 
even animals can be demonized. All you have to do is think about the Garden of Eden, the serpent that we find there, occupied, dominated by Satan, and you begin to understand uh, they can, that the Lord can allow them to do those kind of things. It says forthwith in verse 13, Jesus gave them leave, he gave them permission, and these unclean spirits, a reference to the demons, ran down and went into the pigs, into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a, a steep place into the sea. That's another indication for us that we think we know the area where they're talking about there where they could have gone down. The only difficulty, as I mentioned a few moments ago, is they never, they have not yet found the tombs. When they when they find the tombs, I would imagine there will be announcements all over the archaeological sites. Of they, they think they finally found a place. It says there were 2,000 of those pigs. In uh, the notes, I referred to the fact that uh, there's, a, there's a wag or a jokester who said, you could describe this passage as at the beach with the Lord in a pigskin swimsuit referring to the demons being there in the pigs. Well, the interesting thing about this passage is it comes right after this terrible storm that you see in Mark chapter 4. I preached about that storm from Matthew here a while back, and we talked about how on the Sea of Galilee, just because it is so far down and the areas above it, Mount Hermon off to the north, up to, going up to about 9,000 feet, and sloping down just how quickly and how suddenly storms can come on the Sea of Galilee. And here's what those disciples had just witnessed. They had just witnessed the Lord calm that tempestuous lake. Uh, Our guide, when we were over in Israel the last time, his name was Juval, he said, by the way, why do they call it the Sea of Galilee instead of the lake, the big, large, freshwater lake of Galilee? And he said, the answer is, because there was, there was no Hebrew word for lake. Their, their yam is the word they have for sea, and so it's called the Sea of Galilee, even to this very day. They watched the calming of that tempestuous lake by Jesus Christ, and now they're getting ready to watch him calm a tempestuous life. Do you see what I mean when I say that the Lord is here reintroducing himself? He, he is specifically putting his disciples into situations where they have to take stock again and ask, who is this? I mean, what kind of power does he actually have? And so here at this place called Kersey, here is where he is going to demonstrate his glory. When you see what is happening here, first the calming of the lake and the calming of a life, you begin to realize, you know, life's most wonderful conclusion really is that Jesus is the only hope. So let's get into it, shall we, just for a little bit, and look over verses 2 through 5. And notice there that when he, Jesus Christ, came out of the ship, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs. That kind of gets your attention right there. It's a little spooky area, an area where he is actually living in the cemetery. He's living among the tombs. He is possessed by a demon or demonized, we said a minute ago. He had his dwelling among the tombs, and this is kind of interesting, no man could bind him. And there's actually a repetitive nose in the passage here, N-O, that, that no man could bind him. With no chain could they bind him. No longer could they bind him. Apparently, people had tried for quite some time. But he has this incredible strength, and he is, in a sense, like Samson. 
that they are unable to tame him. Now, remember when that word is used, that they're unable to tame him, that word comes out in James chapter 3. Remember when it talks about the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, and it talks about the tongue can no man tame. It says, for every kind of beast and birds and serpents of things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. When you think about what's happening here with this man and you think about how he is not only a terror to himself and a terror to others, ask yourself, uh, what did the people of that place really think about that? Well, the people who were taking care of the pigs, they were undoubtedly terrified of him. I mean, they would, they would run every time he would come out, especially with his great strength. They would hear his uh, cries in the evening. They realized he was taking stones and he was cutting himself. He was damaging himself. Why? As they said to the Lord, he is actually possessed by legion. He is possessed or demonized by a number of different demons. He's a terror to himself. He's a terror to the people. Um, How would the people of our own age view this? Let that question sink in just for a moment. And the answer would be that uh, Hollywood has made a great deal of money out of publicizing the kind of things that are being depicted in this passage in order to scare people and, and cause their hearts to beat faster and terrorize them with all of these things. In other words, the point I'm making is the world actually finds this kind of entertaining, that it's sort of entertaining to see all this, you know, always with the screen in between you. And oh, there's always the realization, oh, this is not actually true, is it? Only realize later that it very much can be true. And that people, even in this day and age, are demonized. And we'll talk about why that is true here in just a moment. So consider the hundreds of thousands of dollars that are spent each year in October when people say we're going to have a haunted house. And and people pay good money just to go in and, and be scared by the same kind of things that you are seeing depicted in this passage. The millions spent by viewers who watch the horror films full of nightmarish scenes skillfully woven together by the producers. The reality that this is the place that no one would want to go. I mean, that's the reality of it is you wouldn't actually want to go or be around such a person that they are using here for entertainment. Why? These demons are destroying families. This man is alienated from his loved ones. It, it blunts his great potential as a, an image bearer of God. What God wanted him to accomplish is blunted here by the demons. We see by the end of this story that he actually goes and accomplishes that, which really glorifies the Lord. But you really have to ask, what's the point? I mean, what, what is the point that we're trying to make here? Well, think of it this way. Sin and Satan can make you a terror to yourself and to others. Isn't that true? Sin and Satan can make you a terror to yourself and to others. For instance, would you consider with me in Matthew chapter 10? Think about these words. Jesus called the 12 to him, and he sent out the 12. 
And among the powers and authorities that he gave to the 12 was the ability to cast out demons. Why is that so significant? The 12. Well, because the 12 includes whom? You tell me it includes it includes Judas. It includes Judas. You mean to tell me that Judas was given the power to cast out demons only to come to the end of his life as he was preparing to betray Jesus and Satan himself entered into him. That's, that really ought to catch the attention of every single one of us here. It, it's, when you think about Judas having been given power to cast out demons, and then he himself was possessed by Satan, it tells you something. And so you begin to say, well, how did that happen? I mean, what, what are the indications? The scripture tells us a little bit about this, and I include it there in your notes, but if you were to look in John chapter 12 and verse 6, here's one of the things you would find out, that Judas was actually the treasurer for the 12. Ask the question again, why would the Lord do that? Why, why in the first place, why would he, knowing who Judas was and knowing what Judas would become, why did Jesus actually invite him into the circle? And why did he ask him to actually, uh, the, the King James says, bear the bag? Why did, he, why did he ask him to be the treasurer? And I think part of the answer is that the Lord wanted his enemies in close he wanted them looking at every single thing he did. Later on, under Pilate, when the Jewish people and the Romans tried to accuse Jesus, and they wanted to accuse him of having done certain things, who should have been the first witness that they would have brought up to say, here, it's so clear? The first person there should have been Judas. But Judas, living that close to him and knowing where every shekel went, where every coin went, even Judas didn't have anything against him. I marvel over that when I, every time I think about that. But you have to remember what's really going on in this story is that the Lord is demonstrating his great glory. Just as he is in this passage, he's doing the same thing with Judas. So question, how was it that Satan entered into Judas? Here's the best indications we have. There was a lusting after money there was thievery, there was greed, and there was very likely a, a lusting after a reputation. Now, one of the reasons that gets our attention is it raises a really terrifying implication. And that is that any sin, any sin, repeated confirmed in its repetition that any sin puts someone in danger of being dominated by the evil one. Any sin. Stop to think about the implications of that. And one of the reasons I raise that question is, for instance, and I think I sent this out in glimpses, have you ever noticed in what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer or the Lord's Model Prayer, have you ever noticed that when he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, and many translations get this exactly right, there's a definite article in front of evil. What he's saying there is, deliver us from the evil one. 
Then he goes on to say, for if you forgive not, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. What's the clear, distinct application you would make from that passage? That being unwilling to forgive actually shows that someone is under the influence of the evil one. That's a little terrifying, isn't it, folks? That someone who is unwilling to forgive, Matthew chapter 6, is actually being very much dominated by the evil one. Consider, for instance, uh, Peter, when this is right after Barnabas had given all of that property in the book of Acts. Well, there was a couple, they were named Ananias and Sapphira. This is Acts chapter 6. They said, hey, look at this. I mean, Barnabas here in this newly forming church, Barnabas, I mean, his, it's like his reputation, his stock really went up when he, when he gave all that property and laid it at the apostles' feet. Wow, you know what? Ananias and Sapphira say to themselves, you know what? We, we, we could get that kind of reputation. And so they agree together to sell a piece of property but not give the whole thing, but tell everybody else that they're giving the whole thing. And what happens when Ananias is with Peter? Peter says, why has Satan provoked you to lie? And Ananias ultimately falls down dead at Peter's feet. And when Sapphira comes in, she doesn't know that Ananias is dead. Peter asks her the same question. And she's agreed to lie. What happens to her? She dies on the spot. Think about those words, though. Why has Satan provoked you to lie? Let that sink in. Satan can provoke people to lie. John tells you he is the father of lies. John chapter 8 tells you he's the father of lies. In contrast to what you find in James chapter 1 and verse 17, that our God is the father of lights in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Satan is the father of lies. Jesus said to those who were his critics, he said, and the lust of your father you will do. What are the lust of his father? What is it that their father, the devil, lust after? Well, you go to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, he said, I will be like the most high. Very unlike the angel this morning that we talked about when John the apostle fell down to worship him. He said, don't you do it. Stop. This is not right. Satan would love that. In fact, that was part of the temptation when Satan in Matthew chapter 4, he said to Jesus, fall down and worship me and, and I will give you all these things. Satan is at work in each one of these cases, whether it be greed, whether it be a lust for a reputation, whether it be about lies. Do you remember also over in Ephesians when it talks about this, Ephesians speaks of the fact that in Ephesians chapter 4, that when he says, and let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let that sink in for a moment. He says, be angry, sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. What's the clear application you would make out of that? That sinful anger, repeated sinful anger, that when, when someone is just continually sinfully angry, very great danger is he's giving place to the devil. Now you say, pastor, are you saying that a Christian can be demonized? I'm not saying that. I believe that he's indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. But certainly Peter is writing to Christians, isn't he, when he says the devil is like a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. 
You see, as we go into the scriptures and we start thinking about what we have there, the fact is we may know people who are, though they may not have the outward manifestations of the maniac of Gadara, they are very much like him and are in very great danger from these sins that continually give themselves over to the, the reality of being dominated by the evil one. It is more than a little terrifying when you stop to think about that. The Jewish mindset here is that this story is full of unclean and abominable things. Unclean people, the Gentiles, the Romans, the swine herds, the pigs, the unclean spirits. I mean, to them, this is just abominable. They wouldn't want anything to do with any of this. And so it especially gets their attention that here is this man who is a haunted man. And what would people say about this man? They say, there's no hope. I mean, there, there is absolutely no hope. It, 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 nobody can do anything for this man. He's going to eventually die. He's eventually going to end his life probably in suicide or something. There's absolutely no hope. Those are exactly the kind of situations that the Lord Jesus loves to step into the middle of. Again, I say, it's life's most wonderful conclusion is Jesus is the only hope. And you can see this. Notice what happens when when he runs to the Lord. When he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and saying, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? You know, when it talks about in Philippians, and this comes out uh, a couple other places in Scripture in Romans, every knee will bow, things in heaven and things in earth, things under the earth. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here you have a little indication of it. Even the demons are coming, and they're falling down before him. And what are they saying about him? You are the son of the most high God. And, and they know that. They know the reality of it. And they're saying to him, please, you know, the time of our torment is not yet. So these demons had this great power to break chains and bonds. But what does Jesus have power to do? He has the power to break the bondage of Satan. Let us tonight honor our Lord who has that kind of power He has that ability to break them, to break their power. When the demons meet the divine, the contest is absolutely over because they said, you're the son of the most high God. And verse 19 says, "Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, the the man that he's speaking of there. He didn't allow him to go with him. But what what did Jesus say to the man down in verse 19? He said, go and tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you. You see what he's saying in that passage. He is the Lord. He is the messenger of the Lord, that the Lord is the one who absolutely does this. If you pull back and think about this just for a minute, how does the world love to present this? Well, they love to present this as an eternal conflict between good and evil. They refer to it as dualism, D-U-A-L-I-S-M. You see it in symbols like the yin-yang, that there is this evil and good, and for them it is an eternal conflict. Here's the good news that Pastor Rod and I are going to share with you from the book of the Revelation. It's not an eternal conflict. It's going to be over. There's going to come a day when this will be over. When people say to you sometime, what is this world coming to? The best answer is coming to an end. I mean, the Lord is going to ultimately resolve all those things. 
And when you see how he is dealing with this man, this demonized man at Gadara, Kersi, Gergesa, the area where it is there, you see he has that kind of power and ultimately will deliver in the most wonderful sense that we're going to see as we continue in Revelation 19. So it's, it's not a dualism. It's not a yin-yang. It's not the continual eternal conflict of good and evil. No. When they come into his presence, he is in charge and they know we are going to do exactly what he tells us to do because he has that kind of power. He said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. He asked him, what is your name? He said, my name is Legion. There were many of them. Many of these demons were demonizing this single man, which is pretty amazing in and of itself. So what happens here? The demons recognize his supreme authority, the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. I just like to pause and ask, do you know someone like this? Do you know someone who is just plagued by lying or greed or a lust for reputation or, I mean, they're just craving control? Do you know someone like that? It would be very important to pray for people like that, knowing that the Lord has this kind of power. It's exactly why you find in 1 Peter 5, 8, spoken to Christians, be sober be vigilant, knowing that your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. What do we learn from this passage? We learn that spiritual warfare is real, folks. This is, this is a real war. This is a real struggle. And we also know who is going to win. Look, in Revelation chapter 12, and I think it was the message that Pastor Rod preached on this, Revelation chapter 12 Do you remember that it says the tail of the dragon actually drew a third of the stars, that is a third of the angels out of of heaven? Let, Let that sink in for a moment. If Satan has such influence that a third of the angels followed after him, do you realize the kind of power he has to deceive even in our day? Is there any wonder that so many people are, are demonized or so heavily influenced by lying and lust of all kinds? As I say, this ought to give, give real pause and, and real uh, a time to carefully consider what's actually going on in passages like this, always with this reality. Life's most wonderful conclusion is this. The most wonderful conclusion for life is Jesus is the only hope. That Jesus is the one who ultimately can deal with this. So tonight I would ask you, are you continually plagued with evil thoughts? Would you say tonight as you sit here, wow, if anybody really knew, I, I'm just, I am just plagued by continually evil thoughts. Bear in mind that the world and the flesh and the devil, that's exactly where they want to keep you. For me, those continual evil thoughts that we're talking about, that's one of the things that led me to realize I'm not a Christian. I was just not a Christian. I realized I can tell where my mind is taking me. If you are absolutely plagued by these evil thoughts, what should you do? Do what this man did. Run to Jesus. I mean, there's your answer. Draw near to the Lord. Do you fear the evil powers that are destroying your family? 
I think all of us ought to stop and pay attention. I mean, look at the evil powers that are at work in our families and person after person. I've heard many of you here in this room talk about the things that are going on inside your families. Okay, when, when you see that and you see that as a reality in your family, what should you do? The answer is you should run to Jesus. That's what this man did. He ran to Jesus. I want to point out, though, that in this passage, you have one of the most surprising ironies anywhere in the Gospels, and certainly in the book of Mark, were the people grateful that this man was delivered from demons? Did they come to him and say, oh, thank you. We are so grateful to you that you have delivered this man from these demons. No, why not? They really didn't see the value of a soul. To them, the value of business, the value of those pigs, those swine, was far more to them than the value of a soul. Think about what's happening in our society. There was a dear lady uh, who was here in our congregation. She called up one day. We talked. She came over, later started attending here. And what I found out about her was that she had trusted Christ when her husband was beating her again. She went out into the backyard. She fell down, and she cried out to the Lord and asked the Lord to save her, and he did. Right on the spot, she said, I know that's when I trusted Christ. Ultimately, that marriage fell apart. Then she was uh, married again and very, married to a very kindly man who really took special care to care for her and provide for her. And when he passed away, he had given her a really marvelous amount to live on and a nice house. And what had she done? She had gambled it all away at the casino up here on the Maumee River. And she told me, she said, every dime of that went there. She was a waitress at a restaurant here at the next exit down, and she was just trying to make ends meet living with her sister. How does the world see that? The world sees that as, hey, that's money. Look, you know, we're, we're all for that. You know, we, we love to uh, use people any way we can. One of the things that's going on, there were articles about this just in the last couple of weeks here. One of the things that's going on in the medical understanding of transgender, this came out, the recent, it was, is he the Department of Health and Human Services, where when he was Secretary of Health in Pennsylvania, they found the emails where there were people writing to him and he was working with them to say, you know, if we could get the insurance companies to pay for these transgender surgeries, there's a lot of money in that. We, we could make a lot of money if we convince them, oh yes, this is, this is good medical treatment, this is good uh, health care, uh, this affirms them. And what was it really all about? It was about the money. It was about making more money. Think about what's happening in our own society when you see this. The fact is, they want Jesus to step out of the situation, they want to return to business as usual. In that society, they didn't understand the value of a soul. They just wanted Jesus out of there. But for that man, Jesus was the only hope. It says in verse 15, when they came to find out what had happened there, someone ran to tell them, hey, all the, all the pigs are dead. All the, all the pigs have run down into the Sea of Galilee. They came to Jesus, and they saw that man who had been demonized, is the literal translation there. 
and they had transliteration, I should say, and had the legion sitting clothed and in his right mind. And what does it say? And they were afraid. Who has this kind of power to deliver a man like this? The answer is Jesus has that kind of power. So you're seeing here that even though there was no hope there for in the legion, there was great hope in the Lord, and that's exactly what you can see there in the passage, that the Lord actually healed that man. Notice there when it talks about it in verse 19, uh, it says, Howbeit, the man said, when they went into the ship, the man said, Look, I want to be with you. There's a characteristic of a true believer. I want to be with you, Lord. The, the Lord had even called his disciples, said, Come and be with me. This man wants to be with the Lord. The Lord says, No. I have a different purpose in mind for you. You see it in verse 19. Jesus did not allow him to go, but he said unto him, Go home to your friends and tell them how great things the Lord has done for you and had compassion on you. Look at verse 20. It says, He departed and began to publish in Decapolis. Let me show you Decapolis here on the map. See on the bottom right of the screen, that's your 10-city region. It was an area that was under a a different governance than some of the other areas. It was specifically called uh, the Decapolis region. You can see on there, you can see Scatopolis, I think, is on there. Yes, Scatopolis is down at the very bottom. Today it's called Beit Shan. It's one of the places that the group's going to on the Israel trip. This is the 10-city region. Think about what the Lord is saying to this man. I want you to be a missionary. There's a sense in which... He is the first Gentile missionary that is sent out. And the Lord says, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to tell your friends how great things the Lord has done for you. It says in verse 20, he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him and all men did marvel. Just imagine this. Hey, aren't you the guy who, and he's saying, yeah, I'm him. I, I am that guy who was so dominated by the demons. My life was just a wreck, and, and people wanted me away from there. And I used to live in those tombs up there by Kersey, up by the Gadaria gergesa area. That, that was me. And yeah, didn't you have like amazing power, like to break change? Yeah, and they tried to buy me over and over again. Well, why are you so different? What did the man say? Let me tell you about Jesus. Think about someone you know who is just dominated by evil. I mean, they're just, it's just like they're, they're just dominated right now. And you might be saying, is there any real hope for this person? The answer is yes. Jesus delivered that man. He could deliver them. So what would you say about this text? It, it certainly deals with the reality of spiritual warfare against demons. It's crystal clear in this passage. And the war is real. The reality of it is it's the Lord who is at work. By the way, here's a picture that is from uh, the Beit Shan area. You can go there today. There was actually a Roman amphitheater there. It's very well known today. And you can see all the things that are there around Beit Shan, Scatopolis. The reality of spiritual warfare against demons, the certainty of the demon's defeat, don't let a message like this one this evening scare you or intimidate you. No, it's speaking of the reality, ultimately, of the demon's defeat. And we're talking about that in the book of the Revelation. It tells you about the value of a soul. Do we all see the value of a soul? Who is that 
obnoxious person that you really don't even want to be around, yet they need the Lord. And perhaps you were the one to tell them about the good news and the grace of Jesus Christ. And wouldn't it be wonderful to see that obnoxious person, to see them dramatically changed and to be a very different person and to be a participant in their families and the kind of family harmony that could result? Something better. There is something better here than business as usual that those people who ran the swine herds were thinking about. It says something about society's rejection of Jesus Christ. It says something about the importance of submitting to God's will and the importance of the mission to the Gentile. Let me conclude by asking this. Would you go home and tell your friends what great things God has done for you? This passage, in this passage, Jesus is actually saying to us, go and use your relationships to spread the good news of the gospel. He said, Lord, I want to be with you. The Lord says, look, I've done so much for you. I just want you to go and tell people. Tell them how great things the Lord has done for you. Tell them that Jesus Christ went through death on the cross as the only substitute for your sins because the wages of sin is death. Tell them about his rising again from the dead. Tell them he is the righteous one. Tell them when it's the Lord versus legion that the Lord always wins and he always will. Can we glorify the Lord tonight for his great victory in all of our lives by his grace and the great victory he can have even when others seem to be plagued by the evil one. Shall we bow our heads together to pray? Lord, we do praise you tonight for the opportunity to remember what happened there at Kersey, at Gergesa, at Gadaria. When we think about how you delivered that man from bondage, Lord, I pray that you would stir up in our hearts tonight. We know people who are dominated. Lord, we know, and many of us here have family members who are dominated by the evil one. Would you help us tonight to take heart once again, to cry out to the Lord and remember Jesus is the only hope. Lord, help us to be faithful in crying out to you and crying out for our friends and loved ones and being faithful to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.